We're here at Liberty University. It's the Equity for Africa Summit. Incredible speakers. We're talking about world leaders. We're talking about former uh, acting defense secretary. We're talking about congressmen and women. We're talking about phenomenal people who understand that the continent of Africa is essential to the future of this world. There are so many resources there. There are tremendous people there. And there's the economic war there taking place between, uh, really, socialism, communism, totalitarianism, and liberty. And we've met a lot of good people who want to see liberty enshrined on the continent of Africa. It's a great investment opportunity. It's a great opportunity for the entire world to do things right for once. Let's take a look at some of the highlights from this tremendous event and garner some wisdom from these great speakers. We, um, we, we always knew that uh, if we got this business development right, if we could create the right ecosystem and do so in an atmosphere that allows all of the people of Africa to reap the benefits of that development through greater freedom, uh, that uh, America would be a better place too. And we would be a better steward of American resources if we did so. We, we understood centrally, and this point is well taken, what Mr. Bethel said, every African, indeed every human, wants the same basic things. They want to, uh, freedom, they want to be able to take care of their family. And they have all understand that there's very little that is more noble than the dignity that comes with a job, an opportunity to work and to deliver on behalf of their family, their community. Uh, and Africans uh, that get the opportunity to do so are obviously better and their nation more prosperous and secure. Uh, greater development improves security for all of us. It is a collective set of security issues that are threatening not only Africa, but uh, the northern part of Africa up and through uh, the Middle East. And we've seen this for an awfully long time. Indeed, for too long, terrorist thugs have taken advantage of lesser developed countries and used them as safe havens and inflicted enormous harm and enormous destruction of prosperity. And so as we can increase economic growth and the capacity for businesses to provide wealth and prosperity and opportunity for people all throughout Africa, uh, America. America will be a better place. I was talking with one of my uh, now former ambassadors about uh, America first. This is what we talked about in the Trump administration. And we did so knowing full well that leaders of every nation should take care of their nation first. And when we each did that, every nation would be better off, would be stronger, more prosperous, and more secure. I saw that in, in the cooperation between American companies that had sound value systems. Uh, I saw, too, that when they did that, they could counter a narrative in Africa that comes from the threat posed by the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, African countries should be wary of authoritarian regimes. We know the absence of religious freedom, the absence of dignity that comes from tyrannical regimes and tyrannical regimes that intend to spread their tyranny all across the world. Uh, it cannot be the case, it should not be the case that African nations must be dependent on these totalitarian nations for their vital infrastructure. In that way, America needs to do more and to do better. And collectively, we all, whether it is those of us who had served in government, those of us in business, or national leaders from outside of the United States, we, we all can do better. You know, I've, I've seen this so clearly. Communism, socialism, have failed every place that they have been tried. Not only today, but throughout all of history. And where we see them expanding their failing Africa now too. I hope that African nations will all see that these failed experiments, these failed socialist experiments 
should be of the past and we should move forward to a new future based on a set of basic principles that I think everyone in this room would agree on. And I'm sure we'll talk more about that when I'm speaking with Dave. You know, in America, we have a Judeo-Christian heritage. It's the values that have made our country so exceptional and continue to do so. And we need to make sure that we, when we travel the world, know that any country that is devoid of a values-based set, a set of principles, will end up in the trash heap of history like the Soviet Union did. And as all those who, who walk away from those values will ultimately end up. Look, you all know this, you all live this, you, you've, you've stood up for freedoms, so many of you, I've seen it. I've seen it in your eyes, I've seen it in the phone calls that you and your nation's leaders made to me. Uh, simple freedoms, like the ability to say the things that you believe, and simple freedoms, like the capacity to, to worship in the way that you choose, and if you choose not to worship, so be it. I, uh, I spent a lot of time in the State Department working on a particular problem, said it's worthy of mention here because the world can go this way. We saw what was happening in Western China to a population that is 1.4 billion people with an ethnic minority that is being trampled on and worse. And it is a reminder. We, we all know the history of the world in the 1930s, and I'll bet nearly everyone in this room has repeated the phrase, never again, that we won't permit this to happen again. Uh, it's happening again. And we each have a responsibility. We in the business community, those of us who serve in government, faith leaders all across the world need to stand up and at the very least identify this genocide for precisely what it is. It is interesting. While there have been many changes that the administration that has taken office after us has made, they too have declared that what is taking place in China today presents a threat not only to the Uyghur and Muslim populations in Western China and other religious minorities in China, but indeed to the human rights agenda, and the commercial and business agenda all around the world. We must get this right. We must be fearless in doing so. As someone sitting where you are, or the students listening, may ask, what are the reasons for which someone could think to come and invest in Liberia? We have political stability. In 2018, our government was inducted into office, and we were the first government after more than 170 years that had a peaceful transfer of democratic power. So we have political stability. All countries have their issues, but we've managed over the last three years to hold critical elections. The system has been tested and tried. The judiciary has gotten involved in cases where there were different uh, contestations on, on different issues. We've managed to keep the country stable. We have some benefits to come to people who want to come and invest in Liberia. The first one is a minimum restriction on the repatriation of profits. Liberia is a dual currency regime country. We have the Liberian dollar and we have the United States dollars. And whoever comes to invest can repatriate as much as they want without any hassle. So you can come to Monrovia and do your business and repatriate what you have. The, is a low cost of labor. 60% of our population is young people between the ages of 18 and 35. Um, a lot of them are underemployed because Africa has not yet managed to get involved with the industrial revolution that we need to get on board. We still have all of the, maybe 40% of the world's natural resources 
but we're still selling our natural resources in their natural state. They are in process. And so we don't have the security that we need to sustain the economic gains that we could have. And so we have quite a lot of young people. We hope uh, the garment industry and different industries uh, that are looking for not cheap labor, but labor at a reasonable cost because we want the young people who work in those industries to get their fair chance of work and capacity building, but also to be paid properly. So we're not advocating for cheap labor as it is, but we're advocating for partnerships with, with those who want to come and join, help us capacitate our people and pay them properly. We have abundant resources. I mean, from gold and diamond to coltan and everything in between. We have a tourism sector that is one of the most beautiful in the world. I know uh, people won't want to hear this, but I, I think most people are tired of going to the Bermudas and, and Seychelles and to the other places. We have some of the most beautiful places across our country in the raw natural state. We have access to regional markets. Now we're about to do a census and hopefully by the end of this year, we should get an actual number of how many uh, citizens we have, but we keep saying 5 million you know, at, at the medium. With 5 million people, someone could say, why should I come and invest in Liberia? The fact is, ECOWAS is now a community of states. Not a community of states, I mean, we have become a community of persons. And so when you look at Liberia, all we give, or all we bring to the table, you must remember that we are part of a community. And so all of the, 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 the countries that are involved in the ECOWAS region are now countries that have access to those markets. Africa's um, population is going to double, they anticipate, by 2050. And uh, we have to make sure that the proper things are in place so that they can be self-sustaining. And um, when I came into Congress, one of the things I wanted to do was focus on foreign aid. Uh, it's a well-known secret <laughs> that I wanted to get rid of foreign aid. But after I came up to Congress, you know, I went through a fast learning curve that you cannot remove foreign aid. But what we can do is we can do it better. And so we looked at the different structures out there. OPIC was a great model because it had returned money to the American taxpayers 39 out of 40 years. And um, in 2016, it was appropriated $69 million, but returned to the U.S. Treasury's $265 million. So what we did, that was started in 1974, and it hadn't really been updated. So it'd be like driving a 1974 car today, and you can see how outdated that is. And so what we did is we got rid of OPIC, and we put in what we called the BUILD Act, which was an um, authorization to create the United States International Development Finance Corporation. So that removed OPIC, replaced it with what we commonly refer to as the DFC, and the improvements that we have made were many. Uh, uh, the, one of the biggest ones is OPIC was limited to $29 billion in lending capacity. We raised that to $60 billion. But in addition to that, we'd allowed the American government to take an equity stake in a project and bring in private equity. And I'll explain uh, the equity stake that the government takes. Uh, so instead of giving money to build a road, say a million dollars, and maybe that road doesn't get 
finished for whatever reason, the United States government winds up, that's just a grant and gets written off and we get no return on that. But with the DFC, with that equity stake, the United States partners up, not just with that country, but they partner up with the equity stakeholders. And then when the project is up and running, they sell that equity stake so that they don't want to own that. They just want to help make sure and, and ensure that the investment gets put into place, that the right things are done, and that we can move ourselves out of it. And our whole motto as we did this was to help countries move from aid to trade. And the way we saw the best way to do that was to do strong infrastructure investments for the benefit of that country, not for the benefit of the United States. Our benefit is this. If we can help a country become self-sustaining and move from aid to trade, they develop an economic uh, engine because the infrastructures are put in there that will invite private, more private equity that will create the economic base for job development and things like that. The other thing that the, the Build Act did is we can lend in the currency of a country so you don't have to go through the exchange rate. Countries can make payments in that. There's risk insurance in there, uh, risk mitigation insurance. There's uh, the funding to go into a project to do your studies, um, you know, to make the project feasible. And so these were big things that we could do that we couldn't do before. It's that the BUILD Act um, authorized uh, the DFC to do. The other thing is before through OPEC, we couldn't really partner with other countries that had development finance corporations. With the DFC, we can now partner with any country like Canada, uh, Japan, the UK, Australia, any country that has a development finance corporation. So we can leverage that money we have, that $60 billion, and you can put up to 20% of that in any one project. We can leverage that and that 60 billion becomes hundreds of billions of dollars if it's done right. And so that pretty much in a nutshell is what the BUILD Act did to create the Development Finance Corporation. In 1960, Africa accounted for 7% of the world population, just seven. By 2018, it's 14.5. By 2050, 23%. If the World Bank's and the UN's projections hold, by 2100, half of the new babies will be born in Africa. Just imagine that. Imagine by 2050, Lagos doubling its population, or Addis Ababa doubling its population. Imagine the pressure that it can exert on education, infrastructure, deforestation, climate crisis. So we have two serious issue, issues. One is population explosion, and the other one, the economy not keeping at pace. Um, another number for, for you. In 1960, East Asia was accounting for 2.3% of the world economy. East Asia, 2.3. Africa was 2.2, not far behind. South Asia was 1.7. This was in 1960. By 2018, East Asia was accounting for 15.8%. That was sevenfold increase. Africa was exactly what it was in 1960, 2.2%. South Asia had gone from 1.7 to 4.0. That is an increase of 
by two and a half fold. So our economic situation is in a very serious situation. I looked at uh, how we have been performing over the last, uh, from 1960 to 2018, I can only go as far back as 1960 because data starts from 1960. World Bank, IMF, UN, they all give you. If you look at, uh, I start from 1960 and use 1990 as a midpoint and then from 1990 to 2018. The reason I picked 1990 as a midpoint is that's when the World Bank changed its policy. In 1960, uh, it was primarily financing big projects. Uh, later on, they brought in what they called structural adjustment. And that was, they would come in and tell you, you have to do policy A, B, C, D, E if you want to get money from us. That completely destroyed Africa. It made the poor even worse. By 1990, the World Bank came in and they said that was a clean break from their past policies. And they said, no, from today on, we're going to be a bank of poverty alleviation. Our dream, the bank said, is ending poverty. So the bank became a poverty alleviation. So let's compare how Africa was doing from 1960 to 1990, and how about after 1990 to 2018? Africa was growing on average 3.3% from 1960 to uh, 1990, 3.3%. What about after they changed the policy about ending poverty and so on? From 1990 to 2018, it was only 3.6%. So if there was any difference, it was really a statistical error, no significant change. That is why we keep on saying what has been done in Africa, what has been done for Africa, is not getting it right. Now, why is Africa strategic importance for the West? Africa's development now is America's problem, Europeans' problem, and the world's problem. Interestingly, in October 2019, I, I wrote a piece, uh, and the title was, Marshall Plan for Africa Now or Doom by 2050? That was October 2019. And one of the things I said there was, it's in developed countries' interest to see Africa develop. One of the issues I raised was, look at pandemics. If the worst kind of pandemics comes, it's going to cost you know, the developed world very heavily. You know, from Addis, where I am from, to Washington, we have three flights every day. So any kind of pandemic that starts in Africa, you'll have it in 16 hours. It's no longer Africa is there, it's their problem, but it is the world's problem. Um, there is uh, also, and by the way, uh, speaking of pandemics, uh, two months after I wrote that piece, uh, COVID came. Just a recent study at Harvard, they estimated the US alone suffered $16, million, $16 trillion because of COVID. That is about 90% of your GDP. And that is their optimistic 
estimate. It can get even worse. So something that can start in one poor African country or one poor Asian country can devastate a country like the US to the tune of $16 trillion. What if we get another one three years from today before America fully recovers? So that's why I say Africa's problem today is America's problem. Is how do we make, how, how do we make things like medicine uh, more available in Af Africa? How do we make um, banking, uh, mobile banking, for example, more accessible in Africa, education more accessible in all the parts of Africa? And in my view, one of the answers to that question is connectivity. Uh, and earlier we had the Vice President um, of Nigeria talking about how important broadband was. And, and right now, from space, you can deliver the internet from space. I'm on the board of directors for a company called Viasat, and, and Viasat is building right now the, a constellation that will have more capacity as far as throughput for connectivity than any constellation in the history of the world. We're talking about you know, over three terabits per second of throughput uh, globally delivered. And by the way, the second satellite in the Viasat 3 constellation, the second satellite, is going to cover all of Africa. All, <coughs> all of Africa. And what, what Viasat is planning to do, and they're going to start in Nigeria, then they're going to go to Kenya, then South Africa. But they're, they're going to set up these community Wi-Fi hotspots. Uh, starting in Nigeria with 10,000 community Wi-Fi hotspots, so anybody can come in, bring in their device, and be connected. Obviously, this conference, we've had connectivity with you know, Zoom and, and other, other capabilities. Uh, it is critically important if we're going to have telemedicine, uh, community banking, or I should say uh, mobile banking, if we're going to have um, all of these different education uh, connectivity is key to all of it. And by the way, if you're interested in sharing the gospel, you've got to have connectivity to do that as well. So I think there's, there's a lot of opportunity in Africa as it relates to those matters. Uh, I come from South Sudan. I'm one of the governor. And South Sudan is one of the youngest country. We gained our independence in 2011. And from there in 2013, we went into a civil war among ourselves. And... Um, uh, some of us know that once you get independence, there are always a lot of things that doesn't go into place. And uh, when we achieved our independence, it was not a, just an easy independence. Um, we were just one Sudan before, and because of uh, the differences in one Sudan, that's what led to South Sudan breaking away. And in Sudan, there's two religions that leads it. In the north, it's pretty much um, uh, uh, Muslims, and in the south, where we're from, we're pretty much Christians. And you can see uh, how to bring these two religions to together in a one country. It wasn't easy, and that's what led our country to break away. Well, after we get independent in 2011, as I said, we went into a civil war in 2013 among ourselves. Now we signed a peace agreement. We're now implementing that agreement in a coalition government where we bring the opposition's parties and the government together to form a once government. And that's what we're doing right now. As I sit here today, uh, I want to announce to you that our young nation is ready to do business with any country, with any business, and we're, we're willing to work with anyone. And also, I want to 
announced that uh, with some of you that have never been to Africa, it was asked before that uh, if anybody had been to, to Africa, please raise your hand. You know, doing business in Africa, uh, there's something that people always, don't always put into the consideration. Many people ask themselves, why is Africa still the poorest continent on earth? Why is it? And why is African countries, most of them depend on foreign aids? Why is Africa still dying of malaria, disease, all of this kind of thing? Why is this? And why are we putting so much resources in Africa and still we're not seeing any progress or any prosperity? Well, there is, there is some, some reason to it. In Africa, there are some businesses that goes there. And when they go there, they want to change the rules. They want to change the rule of each country that they go to so that you know, the rule can only favor their, their interests. You know, we say that's, that's wrong, that's not fair. If I'm a business person, I shouldn't come to the United States and change the rule in Congress so that I make more money in America. I don't think that's fair. But there's some people who think it's fair. And so you would have one business person goes to Africa as a person, as an individual business enterprise. And after they got there, they will bring their influence from their country. And from there, we get a call from their leaders saying that, oh, if you don't do this, you don't do that, then we're not going to work with you. And the next tomorrow, you hear that that particular country is on sanctions. This is why Africa is not moving. This is one of the ingredients why Africa is not moving. One of the ingredients is also the governments in, in, in Africa, where, you know, when you're trying to bring private sector together with government, many of the governments in Africa are trying to overrule private sector where they want to make the rules and how, where to invest, where not to invest, how to invest, where you should invest. And I don't think business worked that way. We tried it in our country, it's not working. And now we're trying to make sure that we have the same uh, rules of law that is equal to everybody, that's equal to all South Sudanese, that's equal to every business person who want to invest in our country. And so I want to share this with you and I want to call on any business person who want to invest in our country that you are very welcome. What I want to share with you is I went to work in 1991 for a man named Sir John Marks Templeton. And John Templeton was at the time and really in my lifetime the world's greatest global investor. And we invested around the world. We did not invest a lot in Africa. We didn't see the infrastructure in play there, the, the necessary financial infrastructure in order to justify uh, small global investments. And when I say small global investments, I'm talking about the investments not of the big companies, but of the individuals. American individual investors don't look and say, well, what, what can I buy? They'll look around the world, but they don't say, what can I buy in Africa? And I think that's a development area that's uh, something that's necessary to take place. And the reason that I suggest that is because we are seeing a movement in this world to take from the elite to take and control the investments of the masses to accomplish the objectives of the elite. The prominent term or name for it here in America is ESG, 
ESG stands for environmental, social justice, and governance, and it's a catchphrase. And it's a catchphrase that sounds really good. Who's, who's not in favor of supporting the environment? Who doesn't want social justice? Who doesn't want good corporate governance? But when you dig into it, you realize that this is an elitist attempt to use catchphrases to aggregate the world's money and force it to go a certain direction. So the projects are being financed to support elitist goals and objectives. Give you a perfect example, the largest investment manager in the United States is a company called BlackRock. BlackRock has trillions of dollars, seven, eight, nine trillion dollars. And they're selling to American investors, you've got to support ESG, and yet at the same time, they're rapidly expanding in China. Well, China's a great and wonderful place to invest, but the Chinese Communist Party is not so great, not so wonderful, and uh, not so favorable for investors. Uh, if you know this, if you've seen Alibaba, and when the government stepped in and, and squashed the Ant Group IPO because it didn't fit the government's liking. China does not have a good track record with environment. They do not have a good track record on uh, social justice, and they do not have a good track record on governance. So BlackRock has been actually investing, telling Americans we're investing for ESG, and instead been putting the money into uh, China, which is, which is unfortunate. We have an alternative. We've developed it here. I think it should go worldwide. I think it's appropriate for Africa. We believe that we've done surveys and asked what do people want to invest in, and they come up with liberty, security, and values. Jesus said in Luke 16, 11, he said, if you're not faithful with unrighteous mammon, who's ever going to trust you with true riches? You know, we do a pretty good job of telling people where to give. Oh, you should give to good locations. And, and Liberty University, you could give here, or you could give to your church, you can give to a whole bunch of good things. So giving, we, we take care of. But there are three things you can do with your money. You can give it, you can spend it, and you can invest it. We help people weaponize their money through spending and investing so that they can help to build the kingdom. Let me turn to Rod. Thank you, Kevin. I'm Rod Martin. I was one of the early guys at PayPal. We went from zero to 25 million customers in two and a half years. You might have heard of us. And uh, then we sold that. And I haven't been there in a long time, but we do a number of other things, including a pharmaceutical venture with Kevin, actually. And another thing that we're doing together called the National Security Investment Consultant Institute, which is designed to train uh, financial advisors, primarily in the United States, in this very idea of LSV investing, liberty, security, values. Um, not directly as a counter to ESG, that wasn't the aim when we started, but it's turning out that way. ESG investing is a pox upon the land. It is a train wreck coming because it is like all socialist and socialist inspired schemes. It is designed to trick people into giving control to a handful of people to use that power to amass more power. It is not at all. I wish it were, but it is not about advancing the environment or any form of justice. It is about advancing a certain form of, they say, governance. They don't mean corporate governance. They mean their own governance of the world. We see this in the way the Belt and Road Initiative has developed in much of the world. Belt and Road has proven to be what a lot of us were afraid it would be, which is a debt trap. 
It has become a recolonization of a lot of countries in, in some very practical ways. One way that we can push back against that and find more opportunity for the countries that have fallen into that trap and the countries that have resisted it is to direct more free investment capital in the Western world toward the countries that felt the need to sign up for Belt and Road. And as Kevin said, American investors have been a little bit leery of going to Africa and, and some other places. There are a lot of incredible opportunities in Africa. I want to stress that there is a governance issue in parts of Africa. I don't have to tell you, but I must say, Africa becomes a much more attractive place for investment for people like me to the degree that private property rights are secure and courts are, are truly pursuing justice. And I don't say that in any kind of scolding manner because the truth is we're struggling with that in the United States right now. The United States is having issues with its courts. The United States is having issues with private property rights. The current administration is doing everything it can. You probably saw a news story last night, a plan to increase the number of Supreme Court justices by four for the purpose of allowing Joe Biden to pack the court with people of his own choosing. And God only knows where that ends. These are problems we face globally and they require solutions where people of goodwill, people of faith, people who are Christian believers actually apply the principles of scripture and push back against these awful trends. So what we would like to do, Kevin and I in particular, is build a climate in the United States through this concept of LSV investing, whereby a lot of capital is put in play for sensible investments that can actually make a difference in countries like you mentioned Nigeria and, and so many others in Africa that really have a tremendous future and I think are really on the cusp of some amazing things. Um, we, we see the opportunity for a lot of the lower end industry that has been in China to move into East Africa right now and serve the European market. We see that in some other countries uh, around the world. China's pricing itself out of some of that, but that has been a gateway for China to industrialize and become a modern power, as was true in, in much of the rest of East Asia. We, we see trends that, in, that are encouraging toward that happening in Africa, and Africa with lots of Africa at least in the next two generations entering first world status and actually having a tremendous future. We would like to be a part of that. We need some help again on the issues identified in Africa, but we need your help. I, I'll just end with this. I'm, I'm actually an officer of the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the largest Protestant denomination in the United States. We are very grateful for believers in Africa, and you mentioned Nigeria, again, Nigeria especially. Conservative Anglicans in Nigeria have done more to preserve Christian orthodoxy in the Anglican communion than anybody on earth. Praise God for them. And together, there are a lot of us who are believers here who are fighting what is increasingly a, a somewhat discouraging, but I believe winnable fight to preserve freedom and advance individual dignity and liberty here 
to ally with those of you in Africa who are doing the exact same thing. And I think we can end this century infinitely better off than we began it. But we need to build those bridges and actually work as partners and not, not talk down to anybody, but talk together and learn from each other. I think there's a tremendous opportunity right now, and Africa can in many ways lead a much brighter future over the course of the next 80 years. You know, to the degree that we are facing a socialist threat in the United States, our faith tells us why that's wrong, which is why they're coming after our faith. We are commanded not to steal. The only nationalization in all of Scripture is Naboth's vineyard. And we know what God did to Ahab and Jezebel. We, we are not only commanded not to steal, we're commanded not to think about stealing. Thou shalt not covet. I mean, could you get any stronger against socialism? Socialism is an entire socioeconomic scheme designed around the systemic institutionalization of covetousness. That's what it is. So, so we're fighting that at home right now, but we're fighting that all over the world. And the more you teach people the dignity of property, you know, their own property, other people's property, the more you teach them the dignity of the person and the dignity of self, that we're all created in the image of God. And the more we have that respect for one another, the more we treat each other better, and the more prosperity and trade is possible because we're not thinking about taking from one another. We're actually thinking about, and if you think about it for a second, trade and commerce and capitalism, all of this is fundamentally one thing, it's me trying to figure out how to do well by doing good. I see that you have a need. I try to meet that need. I think about how to meet that need. I, I put my own money and capital and time into my proposed solution for meeting your need. And at the end of the day, you don't have to take it if you don't want it. I mean, that's real freedom. I could spend a billion dollars on something I think you want and you don't have to buy it. That's amazing. But the whole time, even if my motives are impure, even if I'm greedy and awful and mean, the whole system forces me to think in terms of your needs. I am forced by capitalism to love my neighbor as myself, whereas socialism compels everyone to think about how they can get the government to take from someone else and give to me. That's the difference. And all of that is from Scripture. And if we were more faithful in discipling Christians, we would not have the problems that we're facing. And I, and I truly believe with you that over the course of the next couple generations, we're going to see a blossoming of exactly that in Africa and everywhere else. So my query to all of you and Romans 13, just so we get it straight, uh, Submit to authorities because they're put there by God for your good and for the peace, etc. Okay, good. That's all true. That's God's word. Uh, but uh, in our country's founding, who is the sovereign? The, the sovereign is we the people. Right? So when Romans 13 says uh, submit to the sovereign, the sovereign is you, church. Right? So my question for all of you, uh, maybe Rod, if you want to tell, what, what does it mean? Uh, and, and we have been rich and blessed beyond comprehension, but that richness has led us away from the fight. We've become very comfortable and complacent and good consumers, and we're worried about ourselves. you know, how I look in my tie this morning. We're all that way. Uh, what, do you, what wisdom do you have to offer on how does the Christian church, along with our, 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 the Judeo-Christian tradition, how do we fight 
today, and I know you guys are fighting the fight, so. I would start with the fact that we don't seem to think our faith applies to everything. And you just walked us through one of the best illustrations of how much our faith applies to I've ever heard. So congratulations on that, Dean Bratt. That's awesome as you are. And, and truly, we have to realize that the creator of the universe actually designed the owner's manual for absolutely everything, that the Bible speaks to all issues, and that we are required to do so also. And of course that means economics, and of course that means politics, because those are ways in which we relate to one another. So if God says don't steal and don't covet, he's talking to my government as much as to me because my government isn't some black box institution somewhere. It's entirely composed of people. There's not one bit of our government that isn't people. And okay, there are certainly things that the, the magistrate may do that I may not. I can't execute anybody. I can't go kill terrorists unless they, you know, break in my house. There are limits on me as an individual citizen. But the morality that God has laid out from Genesis to Revelation is incumbent upon our governments as much as on ourselves. And moreover, the other point that falls right in line with what you said is that we constantly have church people right now saying that we must submit to our churches being closed or whatever crazy thing comes down the pike because of Romans 13. And they forget that just one book back, Peter is telling his government, we must obey God rather than men. You may not accept an unlawful order. You may not. And we didn't have to learn that from Nuremberg. We have that from the scripture. So again, Christianity teaches us the way that men and women may respect one another, give dignity to one another, may promote prosperity among one another, not by taking from someone else, but by lifting all boats. There's a, a, our gifts are unevenly distributed. Every outcome won't be the same. I, I turned out to be pretty good at PayPal, but really bad at being a concert pianist or a baseball player. I can't do those things. You, there are things I can do maybe some of you can't. It doesn't matter. It, it, God has ordained this all to work together. That is, by the way, we call that the body of Christ. That's the definition of the division of labor. And the division of labor is the foundation of capitalism, which is the foundation of prosperity for everybody in this world. It is not limited to the West. It is not limited to East Asia. It is universal. If we just follow God's rules, everyone can prosper together. Amen. Well, I just want to add to that is that uh, we think in terms, we've got a, a Secretary of Defense here. We tend to think in terms of warfare as kinetic. And I spent a lot of time, I was a consultant to the Pentagon uh, back in uh, 2008, 9, 10. And I'll tell you, the modern fight that we're fighting now is a spiritual battle, no question. But it's manifesting as an economic war. And the reason it's manifesting as an economic war is it really is all about the money, at least from the world's perspective. The world is continuously looking at things monetarily. And that's why our Savior spoke of money about as much as anything he ever addressed. 
And the reality is we're facing this economic war, and it's a war of greed, as Rod pointed out. It's a war of collectivism versus the individual. You have an individual personal responsibility to deal with your money. If you cannot be trusted with unrighteous mammon, who will ever trust you with true riches? And so when we look at our money, it's not the government's money, and we're not to look, I'm not to look at Rod's money or anyone else's money. I'm responsible in my spending, in my investing, and in my giving. And what the world is trying to tell you is don't worry about it. We'll tell you what you can buy and what you can't buy. We'll tell you where you can invest and where you are not allowed to invest, and we'll tell you where you can give and not give. And that is our individual personal. This is where the rubber meets the road in this spiritual battle. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We have a duty and a responsibility as believers to make sure that our money is weaponized for kingdom purposes. It is a war. So the program that I have on Blaze TV is called Economic War Room because we get smart people like these together and we talk about the issues of the day and there's always a monetary component to them and then we say, how do we as believers, Judeo-Christian background, how do we do it? And the answer is we promote liberty, security, and values.